Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today, today I'm talking to my buddy and host of Chef or Death podcast, my personal favorite podcast that includes this podcast. And on top of being the host of Chef or Death, he is also a chef, acclaimed chef, longtime chef. He is an expert parallel parker, super genius, devastatingly handsome, and mildly modest. Does that about sum it up? <laughs> that's what they say. That's, what, that's what's on my, uh, on my bio. So I, I think I just got to go with it at this these, point. These are absolutely true statements in, in every way, <laughs> shape, or form. No sarcasm whatsoever. None. I used None. to have on there um, world, world champion thumb wrestler, too. Oh, that's real good. I would have thrown something with like hacky sack and pogs from my, from my hustler days in middle school. <laughs> I was terrible at hacky sack. It killed me. Yeah. That was one of my, my early side hustles was I didn't sell, you know, ring pops. I would win people's hacky sacks and sell them back to them. That was, nice. that, that was me. So, nice. so Eric, you're a Denver native. That means you're basically a unicorn and yes. you've been going hard. I mean, you talk about it in your bio and, and I know like knuckles bleeding hard for over 30 years in the industry. That is as grizzled as it gets. And I love hearing you started at 14 years old as a busser in Lakewood, Colorado at a red lobster. So you're starting down and dirty, man. It's, it's nitty gritty all the way through becoming a, a chef owner of some spots like third Ave eclectic burgers, Larimer hothouse and Chia's breakfast and lunch counter. And on top of that, being a chef owner, I mean, what a major impact that is for you personally, for the industry, what a tumultuous ride that is. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit. You've been an executive chef, you sold wine, you've been a consultant. And when asked kind of what your proudest moment was, you specifically call out a, an exact day, a meal service that is a lunch in 1997 at the famed Aubergine here in Denver when you got to cook for Julia Child. Now, clearly, she's an absolute icon. Cooking for somebody like that would be memorable. What about it was the proudest moment? And I've seen the picture of you, just a young buck with Julia Child. What is it about maybe her and what she means to the industry as a whole that just has stuck with you all these years later? Um, you know, I think it was, it was more like a lot of people, their relationship with Julia was, you know, on public television and, and, and watching her, you know, kind of navigate this, you know, what we all had in our heads was, you know, classic French cuisine was something that, you know, we couldn't wrap our heads around before her. And the way that she did it, you know, she would drop the chicken on the floor, man. And, you know, she would pick it up and just, just her, not just her style, but that she, she really gave us and the nation um, some, some ways that, that, that she could 
she just kind of not dumbed it down for us, but she put it in layman's term for us that, you know, one of the first times that we ever saw anybody cook on television was with Julia and, you know, we could see it all happening. So this was something that, you know, well, if you've got, you know, the, a knife and a cutting board and, and a chicken in front of you, that these, these are things that you could do too. So I think she just kind of paved the way in, in that it, be, it started becoming a culture. It started becoming something that we could be interested in, not just from a cooking standpoint, but from an eating standpoint, you know, that she, she kind of demystified the French cuisine for us. And I thought that was just, you know, I, I and millions others think that, you know, that was just in, incredibly invaluable information that she gave us. And, and just, you know, she was cool. Um, you know, she, yeah, she, been, she broke the mold a lot, right? I mean, she did absolutely. not look the part. She was not prim and polished. She had a crazy fucking voice, but she right. just was relatable. Like you couldn't help, but be like, yeah, that's how I would cook that and be inspired by it. Cause it was just a simple transition. And she just, she looked and felt different and that was refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. She, she didn't seem that, you know, that it was somebody from a far away distant land that, that was doing this, you know, she could have been your next door neighbor. And it, I, I think that's what the appeal above and beyond her, her technical skills, the appeal of her was that she was relatable, you know, people got her. So it was cooking for her was just, it was a, it was a magic, magic time. Um, I was still in I was still in culinary school when I worked for for Aubergine, and it was when we did lunch service, and Sean Kelly was up for I think it was his last year of eligibility for Food and Wine Magazine's um, best best new chef, um, and it was his last year of eligibility. All of a sudden, we knew we we had an idea that she was going to come. Um, there's big black limousine rolled up in front of Aubergine, which is now Mizuna and out piled, I think six or seven people. <clears throat> Julia was one of them, obviously. And they sat down to lunch. Um, and there was, like I said, I think five or six of them. They had seven bottles of champagne before they even ordered lunch. That's baller. And that's, that's the power of lunch that people don't talk about enough. You know, <laughs> And, and all legit champagne, like all grower stuff. It was just, it was amazing. It wasn't just bubbles. It was legit grower champagne. And we were dumbstruck, dumbfounded, completely, you know, it was, it was, if, if you were going to, if you were going to the seminary and all of a sudden the Pope showed up or, Hey, Jesus is in town. We're going to make him lunch this afternoon. That's really, really how it felt. And, you know, I had never seen Sean nervous before. Um, you know, all of us were not walking on eggshells, but we were really minding our P's, Q's, RST, UVW, X, Y's, and Z's. And it was, we had a sous chef at the time that uh, after we made her lunch, she was gracious enough to um, take some pictures with us. And the guy that was that took all the pictures brought his, you know, really professional back then when we had actual cameras. Um, he, he took pictures of us all. And like a day later, the guy got fired. Uh, Sean didn't allow smoking. And he, he Sean caught this guy smoking outside. So he fired him on the spot. So Can't we were like, need that picture, man. Right. We were like, yeah. no, we're never going to see these pictures again. And like two months later, 
Um, if you're familiar with, with which is now Mizuna's building, um, next to the grill station, there's this teeny, teeny, tiny window that, that opens up out to the patio. And I'm cooking lunch. This is a couple of months later. <clears throat> um, I'm cooking lunch and the guy knocks on the window and holds up my picture with Julia Child. And like, it, it, it was just my, my heart soared because it was the ultimate chef fish story. You know, it was like, no, I caught one this big. It was, no, I swear to God, I, I cooked for Julia Child. Well, you're sure you did. But I have pictures. <laughs> I can prove it. I love that. Right. Well, hold on to it. I can tell the excitement, the emotion that you have. Hold on to that emotion because I think that that's going to uh, be something we talk about a few different times. Those just those moments moments of pure emotion where you're like, this is why the fuck I cook. So let's, totally. let's get in that a little bit more right now. I want to play a little best served on ice breaker game with you and doing a little research on some of the spots that you owned. It was clear that your sandwich game is strong, my friend. Thank you. And so we're going to play a little game called between the bread, which to mention, I think is a little bit hilarious that right now you're on the, the keto diet. So you are sans bread. So I'm going to put you, I'm going to put you into an anti-ketosis uh, coma right now by just talking bread, 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 and hopefully we spark some excitement. Somebody goes and makes a killer sandwich and, uh, and tempts you with it on, on, uh, on Instagram, Facebook. Over, overwhelm me with the gluten. I'm, I'm ready. Love it. All right. The way we're going to play this game, I'm going to give you a series of three sandwiches and you're going to pick a winner. You're going to tell us a little bit about why that one would outcompete the others. We'll take the three sets of winners, and we will pick a grand champion sandwich from the sandwich expert, Eric Chapetta. Are you ready to play? I am. All right. We're going a super regional sandwich to start. We're going to go lobster roll. Then we get a little more Americana with the club sandwich. And then iconic and timeless grilled cheese. Which of these three sandwiches – for you is a step above the rest. Oh, why? man. Um, this is not going to be easy. No, this is not you're, easy right off the bat. You're going to be sweating gluten out your pores, man. Yeah. Um, I'm, I am such a grilled cheese guy. Uh, but I think because I miss, um, I, I, before I went to culinary school, I missed, um, their club sandwich was without question one of the best clubs, one of the best sandwiches I've ever had at, Be at Bennigan's <laughs> of all places. Bennigan's. Yeah. That um, is a blast from the past. Are they still around? Uh, I think, I don't think they're in Colorado anymore, but I mm. worked for them right before I went to, went to culinary school. It was kind of my, well, am I going to do this or am I going to not do this um, job? But I think I had uh, every summer we go up to Vail, uh, my mom and I do, and we have a lobster roll up there um, from the French restaurant up there. God damn it. I can't remember what the name of it is. But they do one of the best, uh, one of the best lobster rolls I've ever had. So I'm going lobster roll. Okay, the sandwich with mom is an excellent choice. That was yeah. that was that was very keenly done, mom. If you're Such listening, <laughs> Eric is a good boy. Such a mama's boy, I am. Uh huh. I like how you had <laughs> personal connections to each of these sandwiches. This started yes. out really well. All right, now we're gonna get into a meatloaf sandwich. The iconic Reuben and the French dip, like a George's French dip, like the real Dude. deal French dip that you get Dude. dripping wet, soaking wet. You know what I mean? Pick uh, me right, a winner I'll, between those three. Are we talking Chicago beef or are we talking 
French dip. We're talking the, the OG California French dip. Okay. Mm-hmm, the ribeye, the onions, um, the Swiss uh, cheese, the, the I'm, au jus. I'm a huge meatloaf sandwich fan. And when I had it on my menu, um, I offered it either hot or cold. And nine times out of 10, everybody got it cold, which is the A plus way to get a, a meatloaf sandwich. So similar to the cold fried chicken. Exactly. Yeah, people um, don't talk about that enough. I'm with you. The French dip over at Pony Up is one of the greatest sandwiches in the city. That's a but, nice shout out. Yeah. There you go, Angela Neary. There you go, Seamus. Um, but I think... I'm going to have to go Ruben and you're probably going to see why as we go along the lines here. Um, the Ruben is, well, that another shout out to uh, my grandmother, Avis. Um, that's her favorite sandwich. And I learned to love it because of that. Um, it's got all the elements. There's, there's hot in the, in the, the, uh, the corned beef. There's cold. If you're doing it right with the sauerkraut, Swiss cheese is just gnarly if you get really great Swiss cheese. And Thousand Island is like one of the most underrated sauces ever. Because if you're doing it right, I used to make mine and it had 18 ingredients in it, including um, chopped up egg whites. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going Reuben. Reuben. Excellent choice. So far, we got lobster roll, Reuben. The next round, we got the Philly cheesesteak. With or without green peppers, I'm a without, but you do you. The Monte Cristo, got to go with at least a little bit of a brunch breakfast sandwich. And then the ever iconic BLT. Ooh. Wow. Um, I like a blat. Do you know what a blat is? With the avocado. I'm from California. Come on, brother. Exactly. Exactly. So what do we got? We got BLT. We got Philly Monte Cristo. And Monte Cristo. And Philly. Um, I'm going to have to go. Ooh, Bennigan's. Bennigan's is all over the place with this, with the Monte Cristo, because theirs was dope. Um, I think I'm going to have to go Philly. Um, everybody that does a Philly in this city can thank me for bringing Amoroso rolls here. Cause I begged Shamrock foods to bring them in. They had no fucking idea what they were. So you're welcome, Denver. That's legit. Now are you uh, a whiz cheese or white cheddar or both whiz peppers yeah. and onions and mushrooms. All of it. You're greedy. I like it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I so like I'm going it. All right. Philly. I like that also we're, we're pulling in a lot of different directions here. The Philly, the Reuben, and the lobster roll. Yeah. Very different over, sandwiches. We're all now over the got, country. And exactly. We got some regionality going on here now. It's a little bit of an of a interstate war here. Who's coming out on top? The sandwich to rule all sandwiches. The Reuben, the Philly, or the lobster roll? <sighs> As I alluded to, I think the Reuben is without question the greatest sandwich in the world. I'm going Reuben. Going Reuben. I like it. Strong with the Reuben. Now, I did not include the burger, which is a sandwich, and that's a whole nother debate. Correct. Uh, and knowing that you went all in on burgers several times, 
I feel like the burger might be there side by side with the Reuben. Any other sandwich you want to give a call out to, a shout out to that uh, I did not include that just needs to be a part of the, the pantheon of great sandwiches? I think a, a, a good, real solid Cuban um, is also one of the, one of the best things that you can put in your mouth. It, uh, glu- gluten aside, I love a good Cuban, um, especially if they do the pickles correctly. They got to cut them lengthwise and not just the, the round shapes. Yes, so yes. Get, yeah, so it's, it, it's, it, so it's it, that sandwich should not be difficult to eat, especially because, you know, it's, it's done pressed and, and things like that. But um, a, a good Cuban is nice. Okay. Um, hey, we're on the same page. Cuban and Muffaletto were the two sandwiches that did not make the not the nine sandwich cut. So I'm I'm with you 100%. We are simpatico there, my friend. Nice. Th- thank you for playing the game. I think everybody now is going to go get a sandwich, if not just straight up that pony up sandwich, and everyone's going to start googling Benigons, going, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> Which is great. So I mean, you know, we're 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 dropping some knowledge. I like it. Absolutely. Well, now that we had a little fun, I want to get into your story. I like to see where it makes sense as far as your progression. There's a lot of people to unpack through this whole journey of yours. But let's start at the very beginning. Who can you recall being that first person that sparked something in you that you now see being a, an anchor to, to who you are as a, as a person, as a chef, as an ambassador for this industry? You know, um, the, the very first restaurant job I ever had was at um, this Italian restaurant in Littleton, Colorado. It's not there anymore, um, but it was called Pasta's Italian Restaurant. Um, the owner of it um, now owns Odyssey on 6th Avenue right across the street from Angelo's. Um, and they were, you know, New York straight up red sauce Italian joint. And I got interviewed by them super mafioso style, like two chairs in front of me, like in the middle of the dining room. Uh, And I literally, I think I got hired uh, because I was Italian and they were like, yeah, this fucking guy, he could fucking do it. So I, I, the, the, the owner of the, the, of Odyssey and uh, prior to that uh, was Ignazio Muley was his name, but we call we all called him Nat. Um, and him and his wife, Lucy, were just amazing to me. Their whole family worked there. Lou, Mike, it, it, was, it was a family affair. And I just remember, like, they, they just took me under their wing. And, you know, it, it, we, I, I just wanted to learn how to spin fucking pizzas. And, you know, within, like, three weeks, I'm working saute. And these guys are doing, like, 400 covers a night. It was a fucking crazy house. And... It was, it didn't feel like a job. It was fun. You know, I was, I, I had just turned probably 19, I think. And it was just one of those things where it didn't feel like a job because all of us were family. It was so much fun. Um, I still talk with probably three or four of the people that we worked with. And, you know, like I said, this is 30 years ago. Um, it was just a, it was such a great family atmosphere. I had, I, I just learned how to cook there. I learned how to saute my knife skills, you know, it, making lasagna from scratch, all of those things. Um, and then, you know, I moved on to Bennigan's and that was a 10 year span that I worked for, for both of those organizations before I went to culinary school. 
And yeah, talk to me a little bit more about Nat. I'm, I'm fascinated by the Italian family because that instantly brings up a lot of pop culture right away. What you said, the mafiosa, now we're in La, La Cosa Nostra. I'm thinking, I'm thinking Sopranos. Oh, it was Sunday it was, gravy, like all the things. Like, give us a little bit of that for everyone who's listening who has only seen the Italian family portrayed on television and where the lines blur, but having somebody like that buy into you and take you under their wing, like talk about that. Cause it's, it's heavy. It's deep. Like it's, it's heavy, man. It's cultural. Um, we would, it was, I have so many fucking stories about Nat. Um, Give us one that really is like crystallizes. This is what it means to be taken in by the family that maybe some people can resonate within their own families or be <laughs> envious of that, man, I wish I had had that. You're going you're gonna to love this. So uh, on the line, um, the, the saute station and the pasta station is where I worked. And the cooler, like, faced the other way. So there was this, like, little enclave that I was in. And around the corner was the entrance to the dining room. So we would be on a Saturday night at 8 o'clock just like tickets flapping in the wind crazy. And Nat would come around the corner and, you know, anybody knows, you know, any East Coast vernacular, he would just go, Mika, Eric, Mika. And I would turn around and I'm like, Nat, what the fuck's going on? And he was just like, Mika, Eric, I got a big fucking cock. And turn around and walk <laughs> back into the dining room. And it was just, it was just one of those things where it was, it was really fucking funny. It was, but at, you know, what that did was it, it was just one of those things where, you know, you felt like you were a part of it, you know, without him outstretching his arms and saying, you know, come in here, you big dog and, and scratching you on the head. That's the way that, that he showed his love that, you know, he was proud of you and he, you know, you were killing it right now. And it was just that, that was his way of, of, of kind of expressing, you know, his, his, his positive reinforcement to you in an East coast Italian way. And it was the, fucking yeah, bust, bust near balls is, is actually an, an endearing endeavor in that way. Uh, and it was great. Cl clearly that could have been innate in you already, but right when I hear that, I think of expert parallel Parker, super genius, devastatingly <laughs> handsome, mildly modest, right? You've kept that with you. How is that kind of, levity perhaps been something that's been a, a staple for you and how have you tried to pass that on in a meaningful way uh throughout your career it was it's just we're in kitchens and you're there 14 16 hours and you know if you're if you're not having fun doing this you know it's it's just it's just becomes burdensome. It's not a place that you want to be all the time. And, you know, if you can lighten the mood up every once in a while, I, you know, I never worked for Justin Brunson, but when he was on my show, he does a lot of that stuff too, where, you know, let's, let's just kind of break this down. We're doing such incredibly technical, heavy, really just, you know, microscopic shit on a plate all the time. And when you've got somebody in the kitchen, especially a leader, that, you know, can kind of, you know, back in the day, they'd, you know, walk by you and grab your ass and stuff like that. It was fun. You know, you, you felt like you were a part of something. Whereas, you know, now all that stuff is kind of gone. 
you know, I, I get it like with the Me Too movement and stuff like that, you know, you don't want to clearly, even back then, you don't want to grow, start groping all the girls on your line. But it, it was, you know, from the, the uh, back in the, the 90s and the, the late 80s, you know, that's just kind of how we rolled. And it was just more of a, a camaraderie thing without being, you know, overly, overtly, you know, loving on someone. That's just kind of how we did it back then. So yeah, it was that, is that band of uh, uh, pirates. I know that you've, you've talked about before. So I, I feel like it's just where your comfort level is creating that equilibrium of comfort is the key. And as that evolves and changes, be it regionally, the type of restaurant, the people that are involved, it's about that having that equilibrium where everyone feels like they understand the game that you're playing. And I think that was an interesting thing of, of defining purpose. I, I call it the Island of misfit toys dysfunctional. And that probably we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit, but it was, it was yours. Right. And that was what was meaningful about it. Yeah. Is there, I mean, is, is there we're somebody, asking all these, go ahead, go, go ahead. ahead. It was, it, it's just one of those things where we act on, on such a enormously professional level all the time. But at the end of the day, we're just a, you know, a bunch of dick cooks just trying to make it through a shift. And, you know, when the boss is fun too, it's, it just kind of gives you that, that little break of, you know, all right, now let's put our heads back down and be fucking pros again. Cause you know, for eight minutes collectively out of a 12 hour or 14 hour shift, you know, we get to be numb, numbskulls and it's just fun that way. Break the tension a little bit. Understood. So Bennigan's has been dropped more times in the last uh, 15 minutes than in the last 15 years. So I feel like we've got to find somebody at Bennigan's that had an influence on you. Oh, who, who might that be? Come on, you got to find somebody. You and know, if not an individual, the collective, but somebody had a major influence on you because you don't just drop Bennigan's and not have some, <laughs> some really heartfelt connection to that. It's just funny. Like, unless, you're, unless you're getting paid right now, every time you say Bennigan's, you're getting yeah, royalties. Right? It's my sponsorships. Um, I think it was probably Danny who was the GM. Um, he was such a straight-laced, like one of the best GMs I ever worked for. To be honest with you, man, I took more like back office knowledge from Bennigan's than honestly anywhere that I worked. Um, I still use, you know, when I was a chef, I, I used their, their inventory system, um, their, their PAR system. It was the first time I had ever been you know, exposed to a PAR system. Like it was a well-oiled machine. I mean, say what you will about their, their food or, or whatever their, their thing was, you know, a fern restaurant or, you know, a, a bar or a faux, a faux Irish pub or whatever it is. But, like, system-wise, they fucking knocked it out of the park. I mean, I, I, I would still, even on a consulting basis, I use a lot of their systems. But Danny was, um, you know, just a classic, like, really good-looking guy. This guy, like, he was a hunter. I think he moved his family to Alaska. But he really, really, f like, got a front-of-the-house and back-of-the-house thing going that, you know, we we didn't have any angst any animosity towards the front of the house from the back of the house perspective like he really kind of drove that home with all of us that you know we were a family and we were all in this together 
they were, you know, really raw, raw all the time. And a lot of that kind of rubs off after a once in a while, you know, you know, there's, we're better than the Bennigans that's up on Hamden or we're better than the Bennigans that's up in Thornton, like shit like that. You know, you, you, it really kind of drives you to, to want to be, he, he was a big sports fan. So a lot of that's, you know, that team atmosphere came, came along with it that I yeah, definitely dr- identified. Drill with. down into that a little bit more, uh, specifically how Danny was able to practically apply that because you're talking about some very important things in hell any industry, any job, there's always trying to form these divisions where we're trying to morning guys versus night guys and say, define who's better, who's doing, pulling their weight, so to speak, or front of house versus back of house, or it's busters versus servers, servers versus bartenders. And then the worst is when it's guests versus us, that there's somehow a detriment to what we're doing. And, and specifically, Danny, I, I want to know those human interactions that really crystallized some of those, the importance of that for you to, to give everyone listening an idea of like, you need to break through that bullshit. And here's maybe some ways that it, it resonated with me because before that, you know, it was, I was a cook and I didn't want to care about servers and right. guests were nameless, faceless people who just had weird requests or sent back food. Talk some of that through the lens of how Danny was able to drill that into your head. Well, number one was the fact that year after year, the same faces were there, front of the house and back of the house. The front of the house crew made so much money that it was just like a full-time, a real full-time job. Like they were professional waiters and waitresses. Um, This guy, Ski, was the bartender from like the day they built the fucking place. So there was just really iconic people that worked there. And, you know, Danny was such a company guy, like corporate guy, that when he broke the rules, we all had to like keep his secret. So, you know, there was, you know, he would, he would have, uh, you know, for football pools and shit like that, you know, he would, he would do stuff like that. That was totally against the corporate norm, but he would do it for us because it was important for, you know, all of us to have some sort of competition between, you know, within our own ranks. And it was just, he, he did all these, like just the little things of that made, the, the the front of the house and the back of the house had to work together. I mean, clearly there was a lot of shouting and you know, stuff like that, but it was such a, a crazy place to work that we all had to get through this together. And we didn't have time to fucking be angry or be bitter or do anything like that. So volume definitely helped because um, we didn't have any time to be dicks to each other. Just, just but, too busy. Is there anything yeah. you remember, mantra or something during lineup? I'm always fascinated by those, those little nuggets, those gems that you take with you, uh, because guys like a Danny who just are, you know, Mr. Positivity, Mr. Go Team, Mr. You know, coach, cheerleader types, they always have those little quips, those little saying, those Danny Meyerisms where you're like, that's fucking good. Are there any of those little nuggets where, you know, somebody will crack a smile when they're listening to this going, yep, I know that guy. It was so far along, far, far away and long ago. I can't remember anything verbatim, but I do remember one of the things that he did that um, was just really kind of, are you kidding me? We're doing what was we had, um, we had a, a hostess work for us, this girl named Shelby who was like six foot two and fucking beyond beautiful. And she's a, you know, she's a high school student, but this girl was fucking gorgeous. 
So Danny made her the expo and pulled her off the hostess line. And we were like, you got to be fucking kidding me. And she destroyed it. And it was one of those things like Danny had the eye for just kind of turning everything 180. Like who's this, you know, 17 year old girl walking here in here thinking she's going to expo. And Danny worked with her like one or two days and then she just got it and killed it. So Danny had a really good eye for um, putting extraordinarily smart people in really important positions. And if anybody knows anything about Expo, like that's like one of the most underrated positions in the restaurant. And it was that kind of stuff that, you know, you had to respect Danny for because it was just like when he threw her on the line with us, we're like, dude, you're going to fucking destroy us. Are you kidding me? Like any of us could do this better than her. But she ended up just knocking it out of the park. So when Shelby wasn't on Expo, it was like, God damn it, now we're going to get our ass kicked. It was yeah. just one of those things where uh, you, he, Danny, Danny was smart and sought out smart people to work for him and with him. And it just made the whole team better. And just re we, my respect for him was just over the moon. Yeah, I, I, I can appreciate that about Danny. So that's a, that's a good little nugget don't judge a book by its cover type thing and just recognizing talent and then putting people in positions to flourish, even if it doesn't seem like the right decision, big air quotes go on there because yeah. a 17 year old girl, what's she going to do on this line? So that talent right there, I think is important and sometimes underrated that we kind of just put people into these little boxes. And I think the people that break out of those boxes end up having the biggest impact. So Danny, good on you for that, for sure. And the expediter, you mentioned it. Three most important people in a restaurant, in my opinion. Number one, the dishwasher. They touch every yep. guest. Every yep. guest is impacted by them. Number two, the hosts. They are the first touch and the last touch that people have, your guests have. And the expediter, they're the person that needs to be able to speak two languages. They need to be able to speak, speak front of house and back of house. So those are three important, important jobs and uh, they get overlooked quite often. So I appreciate you pointing that out. And for Danny, recognizing that in other people. So let's, uh, we did it. We got to Bennigan's and let's move on from Bennigan's. Let's fast forward a little bit. And uh, what's another person, maybe when you start executive chef, you're looking at opening your own person. Was there somebody who was mentoring? Was there somebody who kicked your ass a little bit uh, that really defined kind of, who you are today and the opportunities that you had or, you know, the successes or failures therein. When I, uh, when I was going to culinary school, um, I had to, I had to work during school. Um, and the first, you know, I don't know, whatever, six months or whatever it was, it was an 18 month program. The first part of that, I was going to school during the day and I had to work at night. So I got a job at the Brown palace hotel and I worked, um, in the palace arms, which is like their high end fine dining air quotes again. Um, and there were two guys that worked there and I just want to show you the, the difference in management styles, um, of how they impacted me and, and what made me kind of who I am now. My sous chef, um, was this guy named Jeff and I won't say his last name cause I think he might still be out there, but he was this little pipsqueak bitch boy of a guy who had one of those, I'm sorry about your penis, Harley Davidson motorcycles. And this guy was like, 
miniature little, you know, you've, you've seen the, the movie Ratatouille, the, the executive chef, the French executive chef in there is just a miniature Midwest white kid that I worked for. And he was just the biggest asshole and would look for ways to be a dick. Um, when I got out of school, I, I, I left school at two 30. I had to be at work at three and then we had to be upstairs, We'd prep all our stuff. And we had to be upstairs by four 45. Um, it was like four 40 and I'm about to put all my me's back in, you know, ice buckets and bring them upstairs. There's, you know, huge stairs that we had to run up and, I had set my cutting board. I had put all my me's in the ice buckets, set the cutting board that I was using on top of the trash can. And Jeff ran over and was like, your, your cutting board's on the trash can. I was like, well, and I literally had a four foot space to work in. I was like, yeah, Jeff, sorry. Just like for a second here. He took all of my fucking me's and threw it in the trash can. This is like 10 minutes before I had to be upstairs. So fuck you, Jeff, for doing that. It was completely uncalled for like you're trying to make a point. I get it. But that was so fucked. It screwed me all of my team, everybody. It was just bullshit to do that. The second yeah, guy, I think, I think that's interesting. Let's, let's, let's touch on that for a second because that's not an uncommon interaction. And there's such a difference between being hard on somebody and wanting to impart some kind of lesson that has upside versus right. just flexing your authority and diminishing somebody else. It happens quite often. And sometimes that's a thin line, you know, potentially you, you earned yourself a talking to a hard lesson. Sure. But not, not necessarily in the way that it went down. Can you, can you give us a little, little insight there and to how potentially that informed the way that you tried to handle that type of situation moving forward in your career? Did it affect you in a way that all of a sudden, you know, you, you, resented and had animosity or do you say, you know what, I'm going to take it and own it, make it my own and then try and do better when I'm in that position. Can you, can you yeah. touch on that a little bit? For sure. Um, it was one of those things where it, you know, the action, you know, you, you've got to, as a, as a leader, you've got to, you've got to bridge the gap between action and, and, and words for him to come up to me and maybe instead of throwing away my entire mise for the night, which fucks everybody, including the restaurant, maybe come up to me and just go, let's not do that ever again. Cause if I catch you doing it again, I'm going to throw away all your mise. I mean, let's try to bridge the gap here instead of actually doing it. Maybe at least, strike some fear into the heart of me and just go fuck could I, I couldn't imagine what that would look like I would have to go through and prep my entire station again so it, it was just it was one of those things where I'm like you're you're just being a dick just to be a dick because you just want to throw weight around because you're just not a good person whereas if a leader would come over to you and just go we don't do that here and be very stern about it and just say look don't ever put your cutting board on the trash can. One of those things is, pre is prepping food and the, the other one is for trash. Like just kind of illustrate it instead of just actually fucking doing it. Yeah. Do you think um, that comes from insecurity? Absolutely. Absolutely. In, in people like, like that. There's the, the only reason why that I, that I was even coloring the picture of who this guy was, was because of what a fucking asshole he was. Like I'm talking 
I'm telling you about his diminutive stature. Like he's a short little bitch. If he was a nice guy, that would have never come up. You know what I mean? Understood. And so there was somebody else that was kind of the, the polar opposite of that, that, that was maybe an illustration of what to do. Was that what you were, you were getting to in this comparison? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the other guy was this guy named Rucci, who was the mater D. Um, and at the end of the night, um, Rucci would come up to me and we had a little bit of a, a teeny, teeny little pass window. Um, and he would put a bunch like nine or 10 coffee cups up on the pass for me and pour through all the wines that they poured that night and talk me through, you know, and these are like grand crew, no fucking around wines, something I had no, I, I didn't know about wine at all. And Ruchi was just kind of doing what any good teacher or leader would be. And that's what all of us are in this industry. We're teachers first and foremost. And Richie would go down the line, try this, try this, try this. And by the end of it, it was this amazing wine knowledge that I was, it, it piqued my interest. It got me interested in wine. It got me to understand that wine is also a part of the dining experience. It's not just about food and kind of opening all these magical doors for me that I had no idea even existed. Um, so that's the, that's the difference between the two guys is, and I mean, you became quite a, quite a wine expert in your own right. And, and it was I know because a, I a passion of yours. Yeah. 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 So I mean, it was because why I did, why did he pick you? What was it about you that said this, this kid needs some more attention. This kid is somebody worth investing some time in. This is fundamental teaching that I want to pass on. God, I don't know. That's a really great question, Jensen. I honestly, I, he didn't do it for any of the other cooks. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I, I think I'm going to be um, mildly modest. <laughs> it was and because you were devastatingly handsome. Maybe that was what it is. Um, I think it was just because, you know, just maybe along the same lines as, as what Danny did at Bennigan's is, you know, there's those key guys um, in your life that maybe see something in you that you don't see in yourself that, you know, as you're going through your pedomic patter of your day, um, maybe they're on the outside kind of looking in on you and just going, you know, Nat, Nat at Pastas was one of those guys too, was like, dude, you got to do this for a living. Like you've got something here. You, you're really good at this. You're getting it. Maybe Rucci was, was also one of those guys too. I don't know. I, that's, I, I'd never seen him since. I, I know we went on to New York and did some stuff, but all right. Now we, we need to track down Rucci and find out what it was about this snot nosed, devastatingly <laughs> handsome, mildly modest. He must've seen you parallel parking, but I'm well, fascinated, I got to there. <laughs> fascinated with that. And I'm very interested what it is in people like Rucci that said, I have to, I am compelled to, pass on this knowledge, this passion, this information. And you are the one that I, I see in this moment. And I'm sure there was other Eric Chiapetas that he was passing that knowledge on to at different times throughout his career at different places. That dynamic is foundational. Yeah. And I mean, figuring it, out how we create more of those interactions, it's the game. Like that's what we yeah. have to do to inspire and continue to evolve. So I think that's, that's a nugget that I, that I hope everyone look, 
listening to this takes away from this is that be the kid who's a sponge soaking it all up or be the teacher. And then eventually you'll be the other side of it. The student yeah, becomes I mean, the teacher and all that. It's, it's one of those things, a, a, a kind of a side note on that too, is the funny thing is, is that when I went to go work for Kevin Taylor, um, I helped him open um, pallets at the Denver Art Museum um, with Cy Yance, Sean Yance's brother. But I work with Sean Yance um, at, um, oh God, what was his, what was it? Brasserie Z. And we had just lost a sous chef when I started there. Um, and it was after Aubergine Cafe. Sean Kelly got me the job with Kevin. And they were, they were doing stages for new sous chefs. And Jeff, the guy that threw all my mees in the, in the trash, he showed up for a stage. And How did that go? <laughs> Jeff, Jeff saw me on the line and he was like, are you going to fucking, are you going to make sure that I don't get the job? And I looked at him and I said, I have no idea, Jeff, this is, this is nothing between me and you. And Sean, uh, Yance at the time after Jeff did his stage, he goes, you know that guy? And I said, yeah. And he goes, should we hire him? And I'm like, fuck no. So what you do <laughs> eventually comes back to haunt you. Um, I, you know, I, I, I was not a perfect human being early in my career either, but yeah, when it when it comes push comes to shove, and you know I'm the deciding factor if this guy gets a fucking job, and I I thumbs down it. It's that's that's how this works, man. It's a very very small incestuous industry, and you know if you take anything away from it is you know be a good be a good brother, be a good sister to the people that you work with because you never know what's going to happen. Just don't be an asshole. Understood. Right. Well, we've we've touched on sean kelly a couple times we have to talk about sean kelly absolute legend in the restaurant industry as a whole the influence on denver along with people like sean yance kevin taylor kevin taylor somebody that i started my career with in denver gave me my first executive chef job so a lot of overlapping storylines there but sean kelly i definitely want to talk about what did somebody like that i mean he had all the influences on you i'm sure Pick a, a couple instances of things you saw yourself down the road as a chef, as an owner, as a leader, instilling into your team that became part of your fabric because of Sean Kelly. And I know there's lots of them, but let's, let's talk about one or two that are, that are fundamental to how you evolved. You know, a lot of the stuff that I picked up from Sean, we changed the menu every single day. Um, that was, I learned more about food and cooking from Sean Kelly than anyone that walks the earth. And what that did for me is just open me up to, you know, Aubergine Cafe was uh, country, French, Italian, California influenced, all these things, Mediterranean. But what Sean did for me was he, he, he put, he put trust into me into, and at that, at that time when I worked for him, um, we were voted by, I think, 5280 and everybody else, um, best restaurant in Denver. And I worked the grill station, which was, you know, very high profile. It was myself, the sous chef ran um, saute. Um, we had a pizza guy and then Sean ran the ovens. So it was a four man line. So, you know, I knocked on Sean's door for probably three, four months every single day. 
I printed off a fucking resume. This is after school. I get out of school and go over there and knocked on Sean's door until he finally called. And he gave me the grill position. Um, I'd never worked a grill position before. I've always like up until then it was always saute. I was just really good at it. So Sean just gave me a chance and put some trust into me. I clearly knew the gravity of the situation of what an important restaurant this was, what an important opportunity this was. And it changed my life. Um, Sean was uh, at that time, an old school kind of chef. Like when you fucked up, he brought you downstairs or took you down to the walk-in and, and let you have it. Um, but we were, we were good with that because we knew that it was out of love. We knew that he just wanted us to be as good as we possibly could. Um, and he never like, he never strayed from any of that. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that was, you know, off-putting or just like, I can't fucking work for this guy. Um, and I think his management style parlayed with the f- amount of food knowledge and uh, the amount of technical precision that he did things with. The passion that Sean had for food was, you could take anything from Sean. I don't care if he ever threw a knife at you or through a pan. He never did any of that shit, but he made you fucking well aware of where you were and why you were here. And it just straightened you up. It was one of those things like you wanted to go to bat for Sean Kelly. You wanted to go bat to, to bat for the team. It, it was just one of those things that it was life changing for me. Um, it, it really opened my eyes to the importance of doing things correctly and doing things right for the right reasons. And how That's do you communicate Sean, that? I mean, how did Sean really communicate that? And I know there was tough love and all those, but what are some of those specifics of you'll just take with you forever because he instilled a knowledge, a technique, uh, an emotional connection to food. Uh, what, what is that, that, that you found yourself always falling back on because of Sean? He never hired a culinary student before. And those guys used to give me so much shit about culinary, going to culinary school. You know, Why? I had to be, um, like you were a yuppie. No, well, their process was like, why don't you just not spend the money and work here and we're going to teach you everything you need to know. And I mean, in some cases he was right, but for my own personal thing, I wanted a, de- a degree, you know, my mom had saved money for me to go to college and then I blew it on a fucking truck cause I wasn't going to school. And then I finally found something that I wanted to do and I didn't have money to go to college for. So I paid for it myself and that was important to me, but you know, I would go to school from 7am until two 30 in the afternoon, have to be at Aubergine at three o'clock. We started service at five. I didn't roll out of there until 1130 or 12. I went home back then, you know, chickens were, you know, two bucks for a whole fucking three pound chicken. I would go to King supers. I would blindfold my, this is no joke. I would blindfold myself and break the chicken down, pull the meat off, and then I would make stock every single day, let the stock roll all night. It was, it was Sean that did that for me. It, it, was, it, was, 
it was one of those things where I just, I wanted to be great because I knew the, the gravity of the situation that I was in. I knew that I was in a special, special place. And Sean was one of those guys that it wasn't the things that he said. It was more of do what I do, not what I kind of like beat you up about. Cause he was in there with us. It was like, he worked the fucking line every day with us. And he wanted to lead from the front. So I, there's a, there's a theme now where Rucci took an interest in you unbeknownst why to you in the moment. And even reflecting back now, it's like, yeah, why did they take a chance on me? First culinary student puts you on a heavy station, like the grill. I mean, what, what are you doing? Like, what is it about you that, that has them want to give you a shot when they're not giving many people a shot? Find that in yourself. What is that? What did Sean see that you didn't see? What did Ruchi see that you didn't see? I think, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to pimp my own show on your show, but let's do it. One of the things that I really had just kind of found that resonates with me throughout my entire life is I like, I just gravitate so hard to authenticity that Sean was an authentic guy. Rucci, you know, it, and maybe that's just kind of how I carried myself. Like I was, I was desperate to go work for Sean. Um, like, he could see it in my eyes maybe that, you know, I was this, it came from an authentic place. This wasn't a place for me to pad my resume, you know, like maybe some guys had, you know, been in the business longer than I had that probably deserved the job more than I did, but really all they were wanting to do was kind of pad their resumes so that they can go on and do the next thing. Sean was my first thing. Like Sean was the first guy that, that, you know, gave me a, a, a door into this, unbelievably incredibly magic world that I had no idea existed. I mean, you come from Bennigan's and a red sauce Italian joint, like you're slinging, like that's what it is. And yeah, he Sean, took a couple of steps up for sure in, into a whole different world, which totally. clearly set you on, set you on a path. I mean, you were cooking before, but now you were in the big leagues. Uh, yeah, without question. Like, I just wanted to, I'm a curious person. I translate that, I think, a lot to why I do my show, why, you know, there's some importance placed on what my show is, is because I'm just naturally curious. Like, I don't just, you know, want to show up for showing up sake. I, w I really want to dig my heels in and find out what the fuck is going on in all of this. So, you know, maybe, maybe that was the thing that, that, that got me into the doors of, of Aubergine. You know, maybe that was one of the things that Ruchi saw in me was, you know, I was just naturally curious from an authentic place. It's not just, you know, I, I, I'm going to grab what I can from you guys and move on to the next thing. Cause I'm only worried about me. Yeah. Knowing, knowing that about you and, and all of our interactions, you, that curiosity is, is absolutely innate in you. And it's very much in me as well. And I, I see that reflection, which is why we get along so well. We're the annoying kid in the front going, what, how, <laughs> when, yeah. where, who? Like wanting to have the depth of knowledge to be able to like understand the why of why it is that we're doing what we're doing to be able to understand it from every single angle. And it's the people that are willing to invest the time and the headache of having that annoying kid in the front row 
But when they do, that's when it really pays dividends. And I think recognizing that in other people, having that skill like Danny, like clearly Rucci, like Sean, there's a very clear pattern of people that you gravitate towards being ones that recognize traits in other people and pull them under their wings. Ant as well. Basically, everybody we've talked about has been the same type of interaction for you, which seems like the most important thing to you. And I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And I think it's clearly what's put you where you are. And it's interesting, have they molded you into who you are? Was it always there and they pulled you into that because it was just there in you always and so you gravitate towards them? I think that's, that's super fascinating. So now you know, what, I what I really want I to hear from you, go ahead, go ahead. I want to say, I just want to say one thing. Like I was, I was really a, I wasn't a great student whatsoever. And that kind of, um, that kind of uh, thing that lives inside of you, like we're, you know, I, I, I put in my bio a super genius and that's beyond tongue in cheek. And that's only just because I don't, or, you know, when I was in my teens and twenties, I didn't think I was a very smart person at all. I was like really concerned that I was like, fuck, am I just dumb? So it was, it was important for me to really learn the nuances of everything that was put in front of me from top to bottom. Cause I just didn't want to miss out on something because my greatest fear in life is being embarrassed and not having the knowledge for a particular subject or something like that, it's one of those things where I just don't want to be in the conversation and look like the dumb guy. Like I don't, my, my greatest fear is to be in a group of people and then all of them turn around and walk away from me just going, did you hear what that guy said? What a fucking idiot. Like that's my biggest fear. So it's important oh, to me to, to dig, really dig kind into, of know it all. Dig, dig into that. That's very interesting because, it also shows in some of your, your wit because you're very quick to uh, poke fun at yourself. So it's kind of like, I'm going to poke fun at myself to let you know that I'm not taking myself too seriously, but I take my craft, I take my knowledge, I take my experience very seriously. And how, how are you balancing that then in an industry where, I mean, we fake it till we make it a lot. There's a lot of, you talk about being authentic and like drive for knowledge is so important. I mean, how do you, how do you do that authentically and then not be consumed by the thoughts of, am I worthy, even though clearly you are, you know, I think that's, you know, we talked about sandwiches earlier. It was that medium was the best way for me to kind of take all of the knowledge that I had learned up into, you know, that point of opening my first restaurant. Um, it was, it was one of those things where I wanted to put as much technical ability that I had kind of come upon into something that the general public could wrap their heads around a fucking sandwich. So it was strategic in an entrepreneur sense where I was like, you know, along, a you know, and this is before, and I'm going to, I'm going to, Justin Brunson's going to kick my ass, but before there was Masterpiece Deli, you know, Larimer Hothouse was doing a lot of the same things that, that Justin had done 
way clearly more successful than I had done. But it was, it was that kind of thing that I knew a bunch of shit, but I didn't know a medium that I wanted to carry that out with. I couldn't open Aubergine Cafe without opening Aubergine Cafe again. And I didn't, I was never going to slight Sean by that. And, you know, not, I wouldn't call it Aubergine Cafe, but I was that, like, that's my dream restaurant, a 40 seat country, French and Italian joint. Like if somebody has $3 million, they want to throw at me. Like, that's what I want to fucking open. It, not anymore, but I just wanted to take all of that stuff and all of the knowledge that I had, had kind of garnered to put it into the public in a way that, it was going to blow their minds because it was the greatest sandwich for, and they didn't know why just because it was so technically sound. Yeah. Because it was coming from a place of trying to put fine dining between bread. Correct. Correct. Uh, Understood. Understood. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense to me. So you're talking about now having the Larimer hothouse, you're in the space now where Mm -hmm. I know we've skipped forward a little bit, but for sake of time, I'm very, 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 interested now that i understand your framework and that clearly people that that took a chance on you people that took you under their wing that passed on that knowledge so that you felt the confidence that you needed to not be the dumb kid right there was a a little bit of a little bit of fear of that as you mentioned so now you are owning you're the chef owner you're leading these places now it's your job to be that for other people. Are, are there some people or some archetypes of people that you just remember? Like I'm, I'm looking for myself as a young snot-nosed punk cook and trying to take them under your wing. What was that like for you? And if there's any specific people or just the types of people that you were really gravitating towards being a part of your team to be able to lead them and mentor them? You know, I think... I did Larimer Hothouse really kind of on my own by myself in the kitchen. We, we didn't have a ton of money. So I, it was basically me from, you know, sun up to sundown doing all of it. We had some people that kind of filled in and, and helped um, this guy, Rocky, um, this girl, Lisa Williams. Um, they, they were all integral parts of us as being to do what we did. Um, I didn't have a proper sous chef in until my very first restaurant, Third Avenue Eclectic Burgers and Cuisine. And it was my first place. I wanted to, if we would have just stuck with the, the burger thing, you know, we had 10 different burgers on our menu, all different proteins, um, a bunch of dipping sauces. And this is like way before Vesta was doing the dipping sauce thing. It was, I had a proper sous chef. I had a dishwasher and me. And we did a, a, on top of the burgers, we did a full lunch menu that didn't cross over into the dinner menu at all. Cause I'm fucking stupid. And it was, I think Bill St. John wrote us up and he said, he said, Eric Chiapetta can't say no to a good idea. And that was the truth. I just wanted, it was my, it was my greatest hits for my first time out. And my sous chef Todd um, was I think a couple of years older than me. Um, and he, and he was a weed salesman and he needed a job so that the IRS wouldn't hound his ass all the time. Cause he was making so much fucking money. It's a classic um, story. 
Oh yeah. Todd's the fucking greatest. Um, I miss, I miss you, Todd, wherever you are. Um, but Todd would bring us, you know, again, more wine stuff. Todd would bring us wine, um, from the vineyard wine shop, um, to, for his shift every night. So we drink wine and we're doing the fucking thing and it was great. And we were doing really, really great food. Um, but Todd was one of those guys that I learned as much from him as I taught him. And it was the first time that I had really been exposed to a real natural partnership between a chef owner and a sous chef. Um, because Todd, Todd brought as much to the table as I could bring. Um, it was just, it was, it was such a good safe place for all of us. It was the first kitchen I was going to run by myself and it was mine. Um, and it was just, it was one of those things where I learned early, early, early on that I was like, I can't do it all. Um, so I need to lean on the people that work with me. Um, nobody worked for me. That was, that was early on in my career. I'd made that decision. Um, from a number of chefs that I'd worked with after Sean, not, not because of Sean, but after Sean, um, that I didn't want to be the fucking boss. I just wanted to head up a circus. I wanted to head up the pirate ship and to really lean on everybody that was with me. You know, like I said, it was me and Todd in the dishwasher and all of us kicked ass. It was so much fucking fun. Yeah. Talk about that. I'm, I'm really into what you're saying right now because it's that dynamic it's the complementary skills. It's the emotional connection. Uh, I want to know about that interaction because I think people need to hear that. They need to know that the way that we dance together in the kitchen and the business side of it is so crucial. How we partner is so crucial. And if we're understanding ourselves and self-aware and understanding this other person and their needs and strengths and challenges – I want to dig into that. Talk to me specifically about what was Todd doing for you? What were you doing for him that really crystallized that dynamic between the two of you? You know, I think it was more of a function of, I had built this such insane, crazy menu that it was, it was way more of a function of, of a time constraint than anything else that I, as much as I wanted to do everything by myself and just kind of let everybody heat and serve, it, it was a function of I couldn't possibly do all of the prep that's involved in all of this stuff. And, you know, Todd had to talk to me a couple of times and just go, buddy, like, we're, we're like your biggest champions. Like, we're all rooting for you. Like, let us do some of this stuff. Like let us bring our talents to the table. And it was a huge learning lesson for me, man. It was like, Oh, so I don't have to be, you know, the chef in what you think a chef is. It was more of a, we can actually like build a partnership and a relationship and a brotherhood between him and I, that this is our restaurant. Yeah. My name's all over the fucking place, but this is our thing. And it was the first time that I had ever like let the reins go because the ship was going to fly because everybody else had a job. I didn't, I didn't have to man all of the stations. You know what I mean? Like if you're, 
I'm not a big Star Trek guy, but you know how, like when you see the Star Trek thing, there's everybody's got their chair and they're all doing this incredibly important thing. But Captain Kirk is the guy that's kind of, you know, directing, directing the band. That's how it felt. It wasn't like I had to jump over and, and, and kick Spock off his fucking chairs so that I could do it because, you know, it, it was just like you, you had to let people's talents kind of, you know, do what they do best. That's really kind of how I run Chef or Death too is I've got a team of five people that work for the show and I just let them do what they're going to do. Like I don't want to micromanage. I don't have time for it. And I just, it's, it's stressful. And so let people just flourish in the roles that you've given them. And, you know, I talked to a chef the other day that it was his first chef position and he was and it's in a pretty prominent restaurant and he was saying, I'm so concerned that I'm not, I'm not prepared to do this job. So, you know, the GM is always constantly saying, you know, think about this, think about this. And he was like, and I said, no, 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 no. Nobody's ever put in the position that they're a hundred percent prepared for. Like that's the beauty of the restaurant business is we put you in position because we know you can eventually get it. And then we want you to own it. We want you to make it your own thing. So it was early on in my very first restaurant that I had to learn that really quick was a, I don't have time to fucking do all this stuff. And B when I give people other responsibilities, the stuff that they come up with or the stuff that they do it technically or whatever, creatively, it's always a better product than whatever I could have dreamt up. Cause it was just kind of, you know, like just let people do what they are built to do. And, you put them in that position for a reason. Like if you want to hound them all day, that's your stress level that you're, that you're giving yourself. It's not, they're, they're not fucking this up. You are. Yeah. The moral of the story is find a Todd, empower them and get the fuck out of the way. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a good, strong point because too often we do try micromanage and we don't spend enough time empowering and training. Uh, I've been guilty of it time and time again of, passing on knowledge is one thing, but it's also important to pass on that. Why the understanding, the depth, the perspective, and then allow them to, you know, aces in their places, like let them do what they do. You can't be the lead singer and the drummer and the guitarist and the bassist and the club promoter. Yeah. You know? And that's what you end up having to be or feel like when you're a chef and really you're not, there's plenty of people around you, but you can't, think that they're all going to be you, especially when you're the owner, that they're going to have that pace. And it's clear that you recognize that. And I'm sure that wasn't an easy lesson. I mean, did you have to get hit over the head a couple of times before that sunk in from Todd or was like, was it just instant and obvious? Yeah. I passed out on the line once, man. Cause I, from exhaustion on my own line, you know, I just want to give you one more analogy um, that I kind of take with me to now. Um, I'm doing a lot of writing lately, um, and I started a, uh, a, a book of fiction that I've never written before. It was always, like, first person. I have two books in the works. One's kind of Shepherd Deathy, and the other one is um, just a, a book of fiction that I'm kind of putting together. And one of the things that I really learned through writing was um, first lesson was always write with the end in mind. So 
to kind of move this into a kitchen thing, like your menu is already built. Like you've, the end is already there. So, but what I do in fiction and how I write in fiction is the, the characters in the book have to enjoy a, a life of just kind of like, let the characters do what they're going to do instead of kind of forcing them into these places. So the book kind of writes itself because the, and the analogy is, is that let your team be who they are, but you have already got the end in mind. So just let them do what the characters in the book would naturally do and not just kind of like pick them up and put them in places. Do you know what I mean? Am I making I any sense? Yeah, yeah, I understand that completely. I'm curious about if you can see it from Todd's perspective. We'll, we'll keep it very specific with him. But what you're talking about is important because too often we hold on too tight because it's our baby. It's our creative expression. And we smother the shit out of it and force people to be different than themselves and and not authentic to who they are within the framework we're trying to create. So that's part of what you're talking about. I'm interested also in if you can see for all the people out there that are currently the Todd that want to be working with a chef, what is it that got that message across? Like how can they communicate to a chef that is passing out of the line, holding on too tight, uh, you know, is, is trying too hard, trying to do everything to get that message across short of you having to pass on the line. I'm really trying to give people a roadmap to the cook, the line cook, the lead line cook, the sous chef to be able to have the conversation up line and have it have an impact. Cause I think too often they feel unheard. Right. And then friction animosity and they say, fuck it. I'm out. Is there anything that that interaction taught you that would say, guys, here's how you should talk to your chef to get that message across. I think it's a, it's just like the relationship that you've got with your husband, your wife, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, that you want to be in this together, but you have to be partners in the journey. And I think from a Sue position, a lot of times, even in relationships, it's never, ever, ever 50-50. Somebody is stronger in one area, the other person's stronger in the other area. So I think from a Sue position is you're clearly coming from a, a place of subservient. You're, you have a boss, but you've got to find the ways from not just a psychological psychological standpoint, but from a, um, you know, what is your relationship with them now and how can you capitalize when they open the door, you've got to walk through it and you've got to show them that you're prepared, you're ready. And then your chef will naturally just as you are in any relationship in the very beginning, for sure you'll start to build that trust with them that they're going to just kind of, they're not going to micromanage. I don't want to say look the other way because then they're not really doing their job, but they're not going to micromanage you. They're, they're going to put you in a place of trust 
So the way that you get to that point is, is that when they do open those doors for trust, you can't let them down. Like if you're, if it, don't be outside smoking when they're, when that door's open. <laughs> yeah. If, like, I'm, if I'm hearing you, then trust is a huge, huge word that I think is paramount to, to life. And especially in those interactions, the timing, you know, when that door gets open, the timing of understanding when is the opportunity to communicate. And then the trickiest part potentially is in what manner of communication and what tone and what cadence, what's the vernacular to be able to get that message across where it's going to be open ears. And I think that's the ongoing challenge, but I think definitely a couple nuggets in there just can open that door for the future generations currently and what happens next to be able to have that conversation. Because I think having trust and being able to have that feedback loop that you don't have a bunch of yes men is pretty critical. And sometimes myself included, like I didn't listen, should have listened. I had the right people and I wouldn't shut the fuck up. So I think that's valuable. That's definitely bringing a lot of perspective that I think people can take with them and try and further those, those communications. So excellent stuff. I want to talk a little bit about your unsung hospitality hero. I know you've been pondering and dwelling on it. We always like to talk about somebody and we talk about several somebodies with somebody that is just, that's the person. They're the one that are doing things right. That just nobody knows about. And we need to bring attention to these people and the countless people like them that are the bedrock, the foundation, the backbone of this industry. So tell us about your nominee for unsung hospitality hero. There's a tough one. There's so many, man. You know, Josh Walken is one, like he's clearly not unsung. Like he, he just won a lifetime achievement award from the Colorado restaurant association, but somebody to emulate. I hear you. Yeah. I don't know that everybody knows, you know, because Josh kind of puts his restaurants and, 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 um, the, the folks that work for him, he kind of puts them up front, but man, honestly, there's, there's really not many people doing it better than Josh. And for all the right reasons, um, I think maybe another one, and we brought up Pony Up, I think Angela Neary is doing extraordinary things right now. Um, you know, it's, she took over um, the ninth door space. They do like some of the best sandwiches, some of the best French dips um, in the city. But her crew is, I think, the, I think they're like 90% women. And I don't know if that was on purpose, but it's kind of a function of how she runs true hospitality. Um, She comes from the Hillstone group. So hospitality is paramount before anything. Um, So I would, I would, you know what, who I'm going to say, Oh my God, what's her name? Oh, I'm such a bad ho. I'm I'm such a bad guest. Um, (laughs) These are great people. I'm, I'm interested in somebody. Yes. These are absolutely people that we need. Emily. I'm very curious about somebody just that you worked alongside with. They're like, I just don't know how this person does it. They are so humble. They are so hardworking. They're so passionate. They never have a bad word to say. They're the most likely person to pick up a shift for somebody else. They're the person that picks up the piece of paper on the floor that everyone passed over three, four, five, six times. I'm 
really fascinated by these people because they're just so important to the industry and we just don't talk about them enough and you know, if we keep ignoring say, them. They're going to leave. Like that's yeah, what I, I feel. And again, this is because I'm so old. All these people are old. <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm going to say Chris Cena is probably the most unsung chef in the state besides, uh, Oh, geez. Man, you really put me on the hook on here, Jen. Oh, yeah. This is, um, this is real, is a, man. Seen as a corporate chef now, but like that guy is unfucking flappable. Like, he's like one of the nicest guys you've ever met. If you met him on the street, you would never know he was a chef because he's just such a good guy. Um, yeah, very quiet spoken. He's also a phenomenal photographer. He is a, pho- yeah, he's a great photographer. He's a well. terrible He's a terrible fantasy football player. <laughs> Getting called out. I like it. Yeah, and he's working. Uh, I mean, he, he brought the Breck Wincoop group into the forefront. I know that was big for him. And Punchbowl Social. He's killing it with Punchbowl right now. Pushing them to 19 locations. Yeah. So, yeah, he's definitely doing that. And he does it, he does it quietly and humbly. I definitely appreciate that. And he also has been through, you know, he was at fourth story and a lot of iconic restaurants here as well. And yeah, has yeah, has done it the right way. Yeah. These are great people. These are the type of people that the industry needs more of. We need to highlight the things that they're doing well and continue to, to push the conversation forward about talking about our industry in a positive light and including more and more people into that conversation that it doesn't become such a, a class system because it's inclusivity of any crazy motherfucker who was the smartest kid in school, the dumbest kid in school, a jock, a pothead. Like we were all included in this. So this was, was a really great conversation. Eric, Wait, Jensen, you know, Sheila yeah. Lucero. That's who I'm, that's who I'm nominating. <laughs> Sheila she Lucero. Awesome. Yeah. She is all kinds of, <laughs> all kinds of badass. No doubt. She is she is your guy, Jeff, in short stature and demure, but a fucking powerhouse. She's and a, yeah, she's the a greatest, The greatest energy coming from her. So you are, uh, you're speaking about a lot of great people. And personally, I want to give a shout out to you because this show, Best Served, really came from something that was brewing in me and, and trying to push out positivity through my own experiences, through my own failures. And you definitely were somebody that I saw as like, he just went and fucking did it. So I was like, I am so interested in having these conversations because it's going to prop up the industry. We're going to look at things differently. We're going to have meaningful conversations. So that definitely had a, an impact on me. So this Good. is, this is my mini part of my own interviewing myself saying, Eric Chiapetta, thank you for what you're doing for the industry. I want to leave everybody with a quote, all two words of a quote that you live by, tell us what it means to you so we can take it out into the world and make it a better place. You say that we need to do good. What does that mean to you? Uh, it's, it's just really all-encompassing, man. Just make good decisions. Make the right decisions. Just do good. Um, it's, so, it's so easy to, to take the negative um, it's so easy to 
just, you know, if you're in traffic and it's shitty or your life and it, your ser- the service isn't going well, um, the line is all fucked up. The, you know, the bills aren't getting paid this and this and that, like it's so easy just to, to gravitate to the negative because it's the easiest way out. The hard thing to do is just to do the right thing and to do good. That's such a crazy thing for us as human beings that, you know, we're, we're so inclined to always like go the wrong path or to, to move, move ourselves into the negative, you know, whether it's for, so somebody will come and rescue you or you can, you, you, we just, we self-identify with the negatives more often than not, or at least I did, um, just do good and you'll just be amazed on how, how many people just want to be with you and, and support whatever you're doing. Um, and it's, it's the right thing to do. It's not always the easiest thing to do, but it, it's, it, it's always the right thing to do. Just, just do good. Thanks for listening to the best served podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at best served podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.